2: Welcome to the Bloomberg p podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
0: Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
2: Find the Bloomberg p podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. while well, trade tensions between the US and China continue to escalate. The US Commerce Department announced that it has placed China's largest telecom equipment company on the entity list which denies U.S. suppliers from selling to Huawei without a license. To get a sense of what this does mean, not just for Huawei, but for the uh, trade discussion between the U.S. and China, we go to Meredith Sumter. Meredith is head of research and strategy and operations for the Eurasia Group, joining us from Washington, D.C. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. Do you think this ban, which seems to be pretty serious, will actually be activated?
3: That's the critical question here, Paul. And what we're going to be watching for moving forward is whether or not the U.S. enforces a blanket ban or whether it chooses to instead issue licenses to most U.S. and foreign suppliers. Uh, The actual notice um, did come forth and say that a license would be required and issued by the BIS, but it all comes down to implementation from here. So, Meredith,
0: I'm struggling to understand the market reaction today because you are seeing the NASDAQ up 1.3 percent. There seems to be a very risk on feel. But it seems like President Trump's issues with uh, some of these big technology companies out of China, this is a major escalation. Why is it not being viewed that way?
3: I couldn't agree more, Lisa. In in fact, this morning, so so the notice came out last night, and at Eurasia Group, we've been working overnight to pull together our own thoughts and views as to how grave this really is, not just for the U.S., uh, relationship with China more broadly on technology issues and on Huawei and 5G, but also for the trade negotiations that are ongoing. Even before last night's notice, Lisa, we had drawn down our call of prospects for a U.S.-China trade deal by the G20. Of course, this is when Presidents Trump and Xi are set to meet, we dropped our call from a 60% probability to just a 15% probability. Now, you add on top of this the latest salvo against Huawei, and we find ourselves in a very serious situation indeed.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, Meredith, uh, that that's a significant reduction. Um, and again, I would, historically, that would have had a very negative impact on the market. But as Lisa noted, the market seemed to be shrugging it off. I wonder what the impact will be on china as it thinks about how it wants to react how do you think china will react to something like this
3: we need to watch closely china's moves over the next day or two it's been very quiet out of beijing and i think probably this is the result of shock um, but also um, efforts on the part of uh, chinese leaders to figure out how should they respond um, both to this latest salvo against huawei uh, but also, what does it mean for the broader response to U.S.-China ties? This is all happening at a time, Paul and Lisa, when we're watching a nationalist sentiment in China, which appears to be hardening. For the longest time, uh, Beijing has taken a very moderated tone uh, when responding to um, U.S. pushing uh, against Chinese industrial practices and policies, and, of course, with the escalation of tariffs, that may be changing. And, again, what it comes down to is, first and foremost, Beijing is going to be looking to understand how lenient or how hard, rather, will the Trump administration be in executing and um, uh, approving licenses or not for companies, suppliers, to be able to continue to work for Huawei. Now, why is this important? to Beijing. Huawei is its most important, biggest uh, technology company. It is a global champion and leader. Uh, And if fully implemented, the entity list would immediately deny Huawei access to critical hardware and software suppliers here in the U.S. that it uses in its global mobile infrastructure and handset businesses. This could virtually hit all of Huawei's products high-end smartphones, mobile infrastructure, data centers, and cloud services. It's going to have an immediate global impact for any company that utilizes Huawei products or services. It really puts that company at at grave risk.
0: Meredith, how do we assess whether this is just sort of a chip that President Trump is using to try to uh, bring a deal to a close in the near term versus some sort of longer-term uh, effort by the United States to curb Chinese growth and, and development in its technology space.
3: So the Trump administration would say that that look these are our parallel tracks, uh, that the efforts to investigate Huawei and to come to determination on on what should happen with Huawei uh, with the entity list so that was separate from the ongoing uh, 301 trade investigation and negotiations. But Critical from here on is watching for signs that Trump is actively seeking to manage the situation, including by signaling to Xi continued interest in negotiating. Um, this will will tell us if the prospect of a meeting between Trump and Xi to de-escalate uh, the trade tensions and to, do it, to de-escalate this latest salvo against Huawei will take place in coming weeks or not.
0: Meredith Sumter, thank you so much for taking the time with us.
2: Well, the white house on wednesday initiated a two-pronged assault on china first barring companies deemed a national security threat from selling to the u.s and two threatening to blacklist huawei technologies from buying essential components. To get a sense of what this means for the global telecom business, we welcome Wu Jin-ho. Wu Jin is a senior technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence based in Princeton, New Jersey, and John Butler, senior senior telecom services and equipment analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Wu, I want to start with you. If you could just describe what Huawei does and how important they are to the
4: global telecom space. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Thanks, Lisa. So, so a couple of things. Uh, If you look at Huawei, the way I've always viewed Huawei is um, one of the fastest growing companies that Americans have not really have heard of up up until recently. And what Huawei is, is the number one telecom equipment supplier uh, globally. They're also the number one smartphone uh, supplier globally. And, um, you know, from a supply chain perspective, they rely on um, a lot of the U.S. components uh, because even though they do make their own chips, uh, they can't make all of it. So uh, there is a global supply chain uh, implication uh, from this uh, from a potential ban.
0: So I'm just wondering, John, from your perspective, which companies in the United States stand to benefit the most? I mean, certainly, we've, there's been a lot of focus on the ones that have uh, that have suffered as a result of speculation that Huawei could be uh, that could be banned from buying components here.
5: So the immediate thought, Lisa, that I had when I heard this news was, "Gee, it's good for Nokia and Ericsson, which are not." U.S. companies, um, but they compete very closely with Huawei in the radio base station market. So as all these networks in the U.S. initially and elsewhere around the world uh, later this year upgrade to 5G, the race is on between Huawei, Nokia, Ericsson, and Samsung to get share of that market. So I think, net-net, this is good for Nokia and Ericsson, the one thing to watch is what Wu was talking about there's a, the threat of a ban on the supply of US components to Huawei and so the question becomes how does Beijing respond to that if in fact the US makes good on that threat.
2: So Wu how about on the chip side? I know um again some of the big uh chip makers a lot of them US based uh you know list Huawei as a big customer. How are they reacting?
4: Sure. So um I'm looking at my screen right now and, uh, half my screen is green and half my screen is red so from from um, the red side has been uh, essentially all the chip makers Uh, anybody who's anybody in in the semiconductor space will supply to Huawei especially given their uh, dominance in the smartphone uh, space and on the uh, the networking space in particular in the optical space so if we look at uh, companies like uh, Neo Photonics a small cap company but they supply optical components to Huawei they're about 40% of revenues and on the other on the other hand, we have uh, companies like Skyworks as well as Corvo, meaningful uh, radio frequency chip suppliers globally. Um, you know, they're about 10% of sales. And then you have a, a, a slew of uh, companies that provide anywhere between 2 to 3% of uh, total sales to Huawei.
0: So, John, you were talking about how, you know, there is this sort of positive benefit potentially uh, to providers of 5G technology in the United States who are not going to have these restrictions on them. I'm just wondering, though, you also mentioned the retaliation from China. What are some of the potential uh, steps that China could take?
5: Well, the one I'm worried about, Lisa, is the potential for Apple to get slapped with restrictions in China. they derive almost 20% of their revenue from from greater China, so that would include uh, Hong Kong and, and other surrounding regions within China. But the reality is if Beijing wanted to really get tough on Apple, um, it would hurt, and it could hurt the U.S. as well. Uh, keep in mind that 100% of the iPhones are manufactured in China, so they could not only uh, uh, look at App, or hit Apple on the sales side, but also on the manufacturing side.
2: And it's interesting, John, just looking at Apple, it's uh, off about 0.8% today in a market where the Nasdaq's up over 1%. So clearly, clearly some, some concern in there. We well, were just wondering, you know, if, if I'm Huawei, this is a really big deal, isn't it? Because, I mean, this is really a threat to my business. Because if I can't get chips from the US, can they even source chips to make up from other parts of the world? Um.
4: Uh, Great question, Paul. Uh, The the short answer is no. Uh, But the one thing that I can say based on the earnings calls that I've heard um, um, across my sector uh, is that uh, Huawei actually has been stockpiling chips over the past couple of quarters uh, to help de-risk some of um, uh, the supply uh, supply chain concerns. Uh, We don't know how much that they've inventoried, um, it might be a quarter or two of supply. So if this is a, a short uh, ban, and, and let's keep in mind a ban has not been put in place, but if there is a short ban in place, um, you know, it might not impact Huawei's business at all. But if it lasts beyond two, potentially three quarters, uh, then it could have broader implications for the space.
0: No, I have to say, Paul, it's interesting just looking at the market reaction right now. It does not seem uh, like markets are fully pricing in that Huawei will be banned from buying components uh, in the U.S. Because right now <clears throat> we're not seeing the sort of response that indicates that people are betting on an escalation in trade concerns.
2: Yeah, you're right. I'm just looking at this strong Nasdaq here. So uh, there's some pockets of weakness clearly where this, the semi-chips, but otherwise pretty strong.
0: That's right. Bloomberg Intelligence is jin Ho uh, focusing on technology, and John Butler uh, focusing on telecoms. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. We appreciate it. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. So, Paul, among the people who I spoke with last night at this Modern CFO conference was Virginie Costa, chief financial officer of Godiva. And it was interesting. She talked about a goal to increase revenue fivefold over the next five years. And the way that they're doing it is betting on these cafes that they're starting to roll out uh, and something called a or quaffle croissant <laughs> waffle, uh, which sounds delicious and she, which also sounds like you might not want to know the caloric right. <laughs> content. Sounds very good. It sounds very good. Let's. Uh, I started out the conversation by talking about the cafe uh, concept, what is new, why it was rolled out in the first place, uh, and how the first Godiva Cafe was rolled out in the United States last month. Let's listen to what she had to say. We
6: decided really to open cafe for two reasons. First, because we had an existing base in Middle East. We have about 40 of those cafes in Middle East that were very successful. And in uh, here in North America, as you said, we opened up the first one uh, last month uh, with a brand new concept. And more excitedly, actually, we also um, now have an expanded assortment. So we have um, available about uh, two dozen of unique items and new items. One that I'm very fond of uh, is called the craffle. It's a trademark name. It's a combination of croissant and waffle because it's actually a croissant that you um, press in a waffle iron. And the beauty about it is that you can fill it uh, with either our milk or dark chocolate for an afternoon snack, or you can have it savory in the morning, your breakfast sandwich, filled with ham and cheese, three cheese, which is my favorite, egg, sausage, and gruyere. And it's really providing now an everyday occasion for our customers to come to godiva and expanding on our you know special occasion uh, products now now you can come to us every day
0: What's the financial case for opening up a cafe at a time when restaurants are struggling and we know that other outlets are closing some uh, some locations? We think that there's a really immense opportunity uh, to
6: really uh, root it in our Belgium heritage. We have a unique proposition. It's a unique product, as I said, and just to uh, share the craffle we also have Belgium waffles. We also developed a signature Godiva cafe that pair very well with chocolate and as well as signature tea, pairing the same thing very well with chocolate. So it's a, a really very nice expanded assortment rooted in a special Belgium heritage, a unique proposition that we believe will um, really benefit the
0: customers across all their parts. Is it the experience uh, kind of aspect of it as well? And is that really the biggest source of growth going forward that you see right now for Godiva?
6: Correct. Absolutely, we think that uh, exactly. And uh, as a matter of fact, we uh, have a plan to grow our revenue fivefold over the next six years, and uh, the big part of that growth will come from those cafes. We intend on actually deploying about two thousand cafes across the globe, and uh, and again back to that opportunity to really have a proposition that is really bringing customers across all their parts. You can come in the morning. You can come for your lunch. We also have grab and go. Uh, You can come for your afternoon snacks. So now we do have uh, really building on our special occasion gifting proposition. We really have a a unique, uh, larger um, proposition.
0: One thing that we talk a lot about, aside from chocolate and and wonderful quaffles, is the trade concerns that have been picking up recently. And I, I have to wonder, with a food consumer company, where I'm sure you import the ingredients from a lot of different places, How much do some of the trade tensions affect
6: what you do? So the beauty of Godiva, and it's not uh, really well known, it's we are actually a global business, we are um, present in more than a 100 countries, we have about 800 uh, retail locations. And um, the um, benefit of this is that and with the international customer traveling, we are um, really benefiting from all the different elements that can, you know, happen in every piece of the world. Um, so being global business, um, help and enables you, I believe, to have really a strong, strong fundamentals to really be in um, any sort of change uh, that can happen in so, at some point in some place of the world. What do you think is going to be the biggest challenge over the next few years? That's a very interesting question. I think what continues, and that's part of uh, what the conversation has been together, is I think, um, and with my Mahad as a CFO, I think what really matters is big data and how we will use and, and actually leverage big data. I think there's still a lot of uh, things that everybody is learning, either from a customer perspective, because you have access to such a lot of information, but as well as a enterprise, how to really leverage the data. So I think it's, um, it's um, a challenge, but as well as a great opportunity for everybody uh, as individuals and as well as professionals in an organization.
0: Do you think that the big data issue is the biggest change facing CFOs right now?
6: I think it's a big component of what um, has made that role evolve over already the past few years, and it will continue to evolve, I believe.
0: How often do you actually eat Godiva chocolate? Because you're quite slim, so I'm wondering. And how often do you have (laughs) quaffles? Honest. Honest uh, chocolates every day. I cannot help it. I have my (laughs) my
6: favorite praline, and uh, uh, the croffle is very addictive. Once you have tasted one, you want that for your breakfast morning, every morning. So that's what you have every morning for breakfast? I try every morning a different flavor, I have to admit. (laughs) May we all have your metabolism.
0: Virginia Costa, thank you so much for being with us.
2: That was Virginia Costa, CFO of Godiva on their new cafe concept, And maybe why you should eat quaffles every morning. I think that was my takeaway, Lisa.
0: (laughs) It sounds delicious, certainly. Uh, Very hungry. Honestly, she elaborated a little bit on the panel about big data and just what that means for a retail brand, how you can predict people's uh, habits, how you can predict when people are going to be coming in and better cater to them. It just, there's a lot of opportunity with big data that a lot of particularly retail facing companies are exploring, but frankly, all companies. That was really interesting to me.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And and just for the Godiva story, just to hear that, you know, the kind of growth they are forecasting for their company and, uh, you know, basing that growth on the cafe concept. So, you know, I would say a significant change in kind of their business model getting into kind of the retail uh, side of, um, you know, chocolate.
0: Walmart shares are having their best one day rally since December as they reported better than expected earnings, their strongest same store uh, growth in nine years. Joining us now to discuss Bert Flickinger, Managing Director for Strategic Resource Group in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York. Bert, uh, can we get a sense of how long lasting the strength uh, that we saw in Walmart seems to be?
1: Uh, Lisa, the uh, the strength will go on for the foreseeable future, certainly in the next 10 to 15 years. If you look at Chicago, uh, where you're broadcasting from now, You look at uh, Southside, Chicagoland, uh, the state uh, from the uh, Great Lakes region uh, to the Northeast densely populated areas. Walmart has uh, one store for every 30 to 50,000 people in Alabama. In states like California, they've got one store for every half a million people. So uh, Doug McMillan, Dynamics CEO, is like the reincarnation of Elaine, uh, Elaine May and Warren Beatty's uh, seminal movie, Heaven Can't Wait. He's uh, investing in technology, investing in uh, rooftop solar, every other kind of savings and lowering prices to raise shoppers' standard of living. And instead of looking at marketing as an expense, he's got the best and the most effective advertising anywhere worldwide in retail. So Bert, one of the numbers that uh, jumped out at me
2: is it has really for several quarters now is the uh, online business, their e-commerce business. The revenue is up 37%. Boy, it looks like after you know some initial stumbles early on in their development of their e-commerce platform, they've really figured it out. And it looks like they're gonna give Amazon a run for their money in terms of the e-commerce across you know a broad swath of consumer products.
1: Paul, completely correct. And uh, what Walmart's doing is investing in robotics, uh, mechanization, satellite communications, doing it everything themselves where their competitors uh, with the exception of Amazon are outsourcing so uh, Walmart has more ter- like uh, Bloomberg on the terminal Walmart has more terabytes of data than anybody worldwide than the other than the US Pentagon to uh, be able to deliver to 90% of the Bloomberg XM Sirius audience within the next 15 months. Uh, 40 of the top 50 metro areas, all, ultimately 45 of the top 50. So whether it's in-store, click and collect, or the FedEx centers in the Walmart 1199 format in Avon, Colorado, uh, cons- consumer can save uh, worldwide, anywhere, anytime uh, with Walmart. Uh, no one else can do that.
0: Well, you you know, when we talk about Amazon and the shipping costs, we always focus on how much more they're spending uh, to get those packages to people sooner and sooner. And Walmart is trying to compete with that, offering similar types of delivery times. And I'm wondering how much their spending is going up.
1: Spending is going up, Lisa, but uh, their uh, total supply savings at Walmart. So Amazon will sell uh, small products, light and weight, small in cube. Uh, and make a lot of money but if someone wants to order a baby stroller or a big bag of pet food uh, amazon charges a fortune and part of the savings and in, in walmart's brilliance in being the low price leader uh, bloomberg editor-in-chief emeritus Ma- matthew winkler did a great session with tom yesterday on esg i uh, in um Uh, environmental, social, sustainable, and governance. And Walmart is investing so much in sustainable uh, rooftop solar with Enersolar and and others, as is uh, Amazon, Target, uh, Aldi, and BJ's Wholesale Club too, that whether it's tariffs or not, Walmart is finding so many ways to save, uh, to reinvest. So as Tom Keene says, what are the units? Walmart was up 3.4%, as Paul referenced today, and same store sales, but units are up over 5%. So you've got dollar stores like Fred's uh, multi-regionally potentially filing for bankruptcy liquidation. So Walmart's becoming a shopping center within the four walls of of Walmart and displacing thousands of shopping centers across America in the the process. Walmart's winning, to your point, Lisa, for the foreseeable future at least to 2035 and beyond.
2: So just you know, looking at the Bloomberg terminal um, and the PGO function for Walmart, seeing they get about almost 24, 25% of their sales from international. Give us a sense of, Bert, where do you think that number goes? You want Do you think they want to continue
1: to grow their international business? Grow international, but uh, cautiously. And in, in our field work, uh, UK, Ireland, we saw the twin towers of power from the continent, uh, Albrecht, uh, which owns Trader Joe's and Aldi in the US. and Lidl, as well as Ocado and Amazon, uh, run Walmart out of the UK, earlier continental Europe. So Walmart took the money, uh, is going to take the money from Asda to reinvest in Flipkart in India, uh, cautiously proceeding in PRC or mainland China because the government is, is not as supportive as one might think. So Walmart wins in North America, throughout Central and Latin America, and wins selectively in Asia. But... India is going to be the big growth engine, and Walmart International will be profitable sales and market share growth up to about a third to 35% of the company over the next 10 years.
0: Uh, Bert, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about tariffs and Walmart's comments on the fact that they plan on passing along the increased costs of certain goods to consumers, and they expect consumers to uh, be able to absorb that. That was taken as really good news by markets. Can you talk a little bit uh, about why? Why?
1: Good news by markets, as the Bloomberg uh, Terminal reported uh, today, Lisa. Uh, Gross margins at Walmart are over 4% for the first time in a long time. Also, Walmart's offsetting tariff increases by going to key vendors, for example, in apparel on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, Cotton prices uh, the last two crop years are at historic lows. So Walmart's saying, look, the cost of raw materials for the uh, suggested retail price are only 1 20th or 1 10th. Of the uh, products. So, you, the manufacturer, whether you find savings in cotton, whether you find savings in technology or supply chain, or onshoring manufacturing in America, North America, or uh, using other countries in Southern Asia instead of North Asia to produce, uh, the effect of Walmart tariffs will be. Material, as you said, but not nearly as meaningful and and to the point of almost being de minimis in this Gary Schilling deflationary environment where the cost of TVs and consumer electronics decline year after holiday year. Bert Flickinger,
2: Managing Director Strategic Resource Group. Thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate your comments on Walmart and all things uh, retail. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
0: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From
5: Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage.